and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. Last month, the district attorney of Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, announced that he had secured the return of $19 million worth of stolen antiquities to Italy. The month before that, he had announced the return of $5 million worth of antiquities to Turkey and $9 million to Lebanon. The month before that, $3.5 million to Italy. And before that, one and a quarter million to Libya, 20 million to Greece, 725,000 to Yemen. Alvin Bragg is on the warpath, and he is not the only one. Across the Western world, the repatriation movement is in full swing. Centuries of questionable acquisitions of antiquities are finally being, well, questioned. And it's not just sketchy dealers and rarefied collectors. Major prestigious museums are feeling enormous legal and social pressure to examine their holdings and return what rightfully belongs elsewhere. But, of course, this raises the question, what does rightfully belong elsewhere? And I'll be honest, for me, the answer can sometimes seem very uncertain. Looting is bad, obviously, but scholarship and conservation are good. And sometimes major museums, far from where these objects originated, are pretty well equipped to do that. Colonial exploitation is bad, but what about legitimate trade and legal artifacts? And is there something to be said for the millions of people who visit the world's great museums and can see objects there versus the tiny number who are able to travel to see them in their sometimes very remote places of origin? And as I'm talking, I know some of you are already having arguments in your head, and that is great. It's a subject which is as sensitive and provocative as it is important. So today on Curious Objects, we are going to take the bull by the horns, or more to the point, we're going to take the jug by the handles. Our curious object for today is the Sarpedon Crater, also known as the Euphronius Crater. That's crater with a K. We'll get into what that means. But this is a colossal classical Greek two-handled bowl from around 515 BC. If you've seen a copy of the Iliad translated by Robert Fagels, you've probably seen this piece before. The cover of that book is illustrated with the painting from this piece. Everyone agrees it's an incredibly important object, but what's been harder to agree on is where it belongs. And for decades, one of the world's greatest museums was completely fooled about where this thing actually came from. Today, we are going to pull apart the story of this masterpiece from its ancient Greek origins to its excavation and rediscovery, the very juicy investigations around it and the controversial negotiations between people from museums and national governments and law enforcement, where the piece ended up today, and whether that decision was the right one. And I'm delighted to have the chance to do all that together with a brilliant young antiquities specialist, Lillian Bartlett Stoner. Lily lives and breathes antiquities. She studied the subject at Harvard and NYU. She's worked at the Metropolitan Museum and the Boston MFA. She advises collectors and museums around the world. And Lily, I'm thrilled to welcome you to Curious Objects. Well, thanks so much for having me, Ben. I'm a big fan. Okay, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you game? I'm game. I'm ready. What is the most sexually perverted work of art at the Metropolitan Museum? Oh my God. Ancient? <laughs> well, wow. That's what you know best, but if you have something else in mind, bring it on. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. I think I would have to say something. It's colloquially known as the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and it is a um, 
Egyptian work where a woman is reclining sort of and an enormous phallus is being um, inserted into her by uh, dwarves. <laughs> okay, that, that's pretty scandalous. All right, you've been exiled forever to a desert island. What object are you bringing with you? And is it Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? No, I mean, I, I don't need to look at that every day. Um, <laughs> I would take a, a cameo in Vienna. It's it's sardonic, it's beautiful, it's a little bigger than pocket size, purse size perhaps, and it celebrates the incestuous power couple Ptolemy II and Arsinoe II, and I suspect it's never been buried, and I just want to touch it every day. Well, you still managed to get a little sexual impropriety in there. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe, I guess they did have offspring. Yeah, true. Good for thought. I'll stay away from that. <laughs> what is the first object that you remember falling in love with? Oh, um, actually, yeah. I was about 17. I traveled to Europe for the first time. I was at the Louvre. And I walked into that great gallery uh, with the huge painting of Napoleon crowning himself hmm. by David, and I was blown away. Like, I couldn't care less about the Mona Lisa, but the detail there, and ugh, still love it. You have been banned from your current field. You have to pick a new specialty. What is it? Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, I'd like to be a lawyer. I like, I'd like to legitimize my argumentative streak, and um, I think I'd like to change some current laws affecting antiquities. Uh, so you're going to take a short hop from antiquities specialist to antiquities legal specialist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. What movie has to you the most interesting depiction of material culture? I don't know about interesting, but I would say definitely Gladiator. You can mm. fight me on this. There's so much good stuff, some not so good stuff, but what a movie. Um, I think also Han Hans Zimmer, genius. I think it's fair to say that Russell Crowe's abs count as an example of material culture. Okay, what lost object would you most like to discover? There's so many lost objects. Well, you can't find them all, but maybe you can find one. Oh. Okay, I mean, Alexander the Great's... Uh, funeral hearse. Now, tell me about that. So they had to bring him back from Babylon uh, to be buried. Uh, the hearse was uh, diverted by Ptolemy the Great, Ptolemy uh, who made himself the king of Egypt. And uh, yeah, but it was a massive thing described as, you know, ivory gold. I mean, it certainly doesn't survive. But that I would like to see. All right, I'm sold. I'll start looking tomorrow. What's Start looking. What's one misconception that people have around antiquities that you'd like to correct? Oh, um, well, I think people think classical art is all boring white sculpture, some of it nude, um, and orangey, squirrely little vases full of obscure myths. And in reality, it's hilarious. It's aesthetically and technically, I think, totally brilliant. And it's uh, frequently raunchy. As you've already demonstrated for us. <laughs> I can continue to demonstrate. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you will. What, um, on the other hand, what would you say is the most overrated classical work of art? I think there's some Roman marbles, copies of Greek originals that are 
so-so. I don't know. I think we're missing a lot of the good stuff. Okay. The capital on Venus, for instance, overrated. Shots fired. Yeah. Take that. <laughs> what? What's one book that you would recommend an amateur read to start to understand your field? This is an easy one. It's my favorite, published in the 70s. It's Martin Robertson's Greek Art. It's in two volumes uh, by this great Oxford Don. And it's just beautiful, gentle British prose. And it brings it all together. The illustrations are really crappy, black and white, tiny. Um, but if that bothers you, then Google them. I think it's a wonderful resource. What's the coolest art discovery or decorative arts discovery that you've made? Not really sure, but I would say I loved excavating um, in grad school. I did it for about 10 seasons. And I think my favorite summer, I was excavating a, a late Roman, super luxurious, a totally fallen apart, colonnaded street um, in Turkey and discovered some fun things. Uh, the second story had a mosaic floor, it had uh, marble columns, it had uh, glass windows, and it had a toilet. A toilet? A toilet, yes. And there was this unassuming clay downspout, and an Oxford researcher who happened to be in the area uh, analyzed it, and uh, it found that it did indeed have incrustations of ancient urine. Now, that guy was quite a character. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So I just loved how it all came together. So fire maybe caused an earthquake and then this immense sort of structure collapsed upon itself and and just sifting through stratigraphically is just so satisfying and so fun. What was the last object or artwork that you saw that gave you shivers? You know, it was a month ago at the National Museum in Athens and I'd never seen it before. Uh, it was, it's this Mycenaean gold foil scale and it was found in a child's grave in Mycenae um, and it had all these kind of wafer thin um, little medallions all de each decorated with a butterfly um, and so usually in Greek art a butterfly is a symbol of the soul and so the idea is this was probably related to the psychostasia the weighing of souls after death and I just found it so incredibly moving. We don't know so much about ancient religion. And that really got me. Okay. Well, we'll be right back to talk with Lily about the Euphronius Crater. First, just a reminder that we've posted pictures of this magnificent object at the magazineantiques.com slash podcast. You can find me on Instagram at Objective Interest and Lily at Lily Agoria. That's L-I-L-Y underscore A-G-O-R-A-I-A, where she posts incredible images and stories and musical accompaniments. I love this series where she associates popular songs with, and musical compositions with uh, works of antique art. It's so much fun. Check her out there. You can also email me with your comments or suggestions for Curious Objects episodes at CuriousObjectsPodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this episode, do me a favor and hit the pause button. I promise we'll be here when you come back. And then hit the write a review button. Just 
give us a few words about what you like about Curious Objects. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. Every single review and rating is a huge help for me in bringing more listeners to the show and helping me to entice fantastic guests like Lily to take the time to talk with us. And now that we're putting out weekly episodes every single Wednesday, which I hope you're enjoying, by the way, those ratings and reviews make even more of a difference. Uh, I am so grateful to all of you who have supported the show in that way. And please keep it coming. Okay, so Lily, let's talk about the Euphronius Crater. Um, and b- before we get into just how important and influential this piece is, uh, tell me what is a crater anyway, and, and how is it used? Oh, yes. Okay. So, um, vases are my favorite. <laughs> they're they're <laughs> technically so ingenious shape-wise. And if you've ever tried to make a little clay pot, uh, you know how hard they are to do. Um, mine are always sort of lopsided turds. Um, and each shape was made for a very precise purpose. Um, craters were really the focal point of the symposium, this all-male gathering, a drinking party, um, that took place in the Andron, a man cave, if you like, in a, a Greek house. Um, so couches were set up around the perimeter of this room, and the crater would have been smack in the center of the room, that all-important vessel that contained wine, diluted with water. Um, and it's a great, it's a great fun thing because the, the host got to pick the dilution of water to wine. So if they wanted sort of a wilder party, they would uh, have less water. And wow. Okay. So, so this is like, you know, uh, uh, vodka versus wine. Well, yeah, and we don't know quite how strong uh, wine was when it was undiluted, but I had a feeling it was significantly stronger than the sort of 12, 14% we have today. So I described this piece as colossal, but tell us just how big is it? Well, it's a big boy. Um, I looked up <laughs> the dimensions today. It's nearly half a meter tall, and the rim is even wider, 55 centimeters. And right. it would have held something like 45 liters of wine. So just uh, as a scholarly comparison, um, your standard keg holds 50 liters. So wow. it's big. Okay. So, and it's decorated with painted scenes on both sides. What are those scenes? Yeah. So I have to give a little, just a little a little bit of a talk about how what painting on bases really means because it's sort of a misnomer mm. um this this one's painted in the red figure technique um but nothing was really painted instead painters were using a dilute solution of clay uh, which was called a slip sort of a suspension um and it was basically invisible ink so they would everything that they wanted to be black on this crater they would paint with a very fine brush this invisible ink. So each beautiful body would be sort of outlined. All the anatomical details would be rendered in on this wet clay, still unfired. And and the background itself would have been completely uh, washed with this slip. Um, so then it, it went into the kiln and it was fired several times with several different levels of oxygenation. And voila! The parts of the dilute slip would turn black, and the rest would be left that gorgeous clay color, the red. So it was, it's, 
it's incredible the detail that they were able to to manage mm. basically by not even seeing what they were doing or yeah yeah that really that really puts this in context um especially yeah. when listeners look at these images i think they'll find that incredibly impressive um so yeah. with that technique what um what what did the artist behind this crater actually uh, depict so he's on the on the obverse that big front side the most famous piece he's showing the body of sarpedon who's this half mortal fortunately two mortal um son of zeus that great big oversized body um and he had just been killed by patroclus in the trojan war and so you can see he's he's stretched out he's over large if he stood up his head would go right out of that frame um, and he's, other than these wounds that have been added, you can see them in, in added red paint, paint that is, um, he's, he's beautiful and his body is displayed as such. Every hair is in place, um, he, his face is serene, his eyelashes are gorgeous as well. Um, and to his right and left, those winged figures are Hypnos and Thanatos, so sleep and death. And they're carrying him off the battlefield. And then standing right behind him is Hermes. And this is Hermes Psychopompus. So Hermes, the escorter of the soul. So he's going to take uh, Sarpedon to the underworld, as it were. Right. So this explains why it's, why it's called the Sarpedon Crater. Uh, but yeah. we've also referred to it as the Euphronius Crater. Uh, what what yes. does that mean? Well... Uh, Athenian painters and potters uh, were not short on ego. They didn't always sign their works, um, but uh, Euphronius in this case did. He signed it, uh, Euphronius Agrapsen. Uh, Euphronius made this. And his painting style, even if he didn't sign it, is so, um, so distinctive that real experts are able to attribute his work even when he doesn't sign. How significant would you say this piece is amongst the the universe of ancient Greek artifacts? I mean, I think Euphronius as one of the Attic painters was one of the top. He was called he was one of the pioneer group who sort of really was innovative in this in making things more naturalistic. Um, so I think it's important art, art historically. Um, but it's one of the many, many, many gorgeously rendered vases around. Um, I would also point out that these terracotta vases uh, were not necessarily so valuable in antiquity at all. Um, the real uh, the super rich uh, got metal vessels. So mm. the big ticket items were bronze and especially silver and gold. Um, and it's thought by some people that the aesthetics of these silver and gold, spe specifically tarnished silver and gold, might have been the inspiration for the black and red figure terracotta examples. Oh, that's interesting. So these were not, yeah, they're not like high works of art necessarily. Obviously, they were valued and cherished. So it's it's a great example. And although it's not intact, it was found in fragments and uh, restored. It's... I think virtually complete, which is also unusual. 
Okay, so I'm really excited to get to the this excavation process and how that all went down. So the object really has been all over the place, uh, and geography is such a crucial part of the story that we're exploring today. Um, and and just to be clear, we've described this piece as Greek, but it wasn't actually found in Greece, was it? No, it wasn't. It's one of these strange, strange things about <laughs> Greek vases. Um, most of them, most of the ones that are in good shape, other than Lekathoi, have been found outside of Greece, and they've been found in southern Italy and Etruria and Sicily. And one of the reasons for that <laughs> is thought to be that they were ballast for ships. So the ships would go, they were going to buy uh, grain from sort of the bread baskets of the Mediterranean, and these would be sort of ballast to take one way, and then the grain would come back. So I think light bulbs might already be starting to appear for some listeners, because now we're talking about an object made by Greeks. But you know, in this period, the Greeks were actually uh, not only trading, but also colonizing in Italy yeah. and across the Mediterranean. And this, this is, of course, is a different category of colonization from what we typically think about these days. Um, this is when we think about repatriation, often we're thinking about colonizers returning things to their former colonies, you know, Europeans who uh, established colonies across Africa and Asia and the Americas. And here it's a little different, but the context is super important. So let's try to get to the bottom of this. Um, so what do we know about when this piece was excavated and, and who did it? Um, okay, so depends how you, who you ask, but yeah. it's conventionally <laughs> accepted that it was looted illegally uh, by local tombaroli, so tomb, tomb raiders, uh, in 1971. And from Cerveteri, which is north of Rome, it's in Tuscany. Um, and then it came into the possession of Giacomo, Giacomo Medici, who was sort of a runner between these Tombroli and uh, dealers, and later Bob Hecht, who was an art dealer. And where did it go from there? Well, it passed through Switzerland, as many things did in the 1970s, um, where it was restored in Zurich. And then it was sold to the Met in 1972. For a million dollars, as I recall. Yes. Which, uh, as you mentioned, is quite quite an extraordinary price, certainly in, in the 1970s. And it was so extraordinary at the time, yeah. And, it, 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 and of course, immediately the price um, raised all sorts of concerns and rumors and a lot of attention uh, almost immediately. Yeah, so when they bought this piece in 1972, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, did they have reason to believe that it might have been looted? What 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 did they think, or what was the plausible or ostensible story uh, for its provenance? Well, I think, let's start off honestly. I, I'm not sure how concerned museums were in the early 1970s with provenance. Um, the, it was a very different climate. Um, and due diligence wasn't what it was today. Um, however, Bob Hecht, the dealer who sold it to them, provided at the time documentation that he had acquired it from a Lebanese dealer, uh, Mr. Sarafian, and he provided documentation that Sarafian's father had acquired it in 1920, 
He gave all sorts of banking information showing how the money had passed hands. Um, so there were rumors right from the beginning. Uh, it, it attracted a lot of um, press attention. And Tom Hoving, the director in the 70s, after he retired, referred to it as the hot pot. Uh, which is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he has a good a lot of one-liners but in any case and i love that bob hecht claimed that he was taking a 10 percent commission on this sale yeah. uh, from the from the lebanese collector you mentioned Sarah, yeah. and, and as we'll get to in just a minute um turns out that was a slight understatement of what yeah, his yeah. margin was on that on that piece yes yeah. and and again i mean and the met is it's, I think it's very easy to point fingers now, and but but I think they did. They they were sending sending their legal team to investigate and and try to get more documentation on this. Yeah, so things at this point got really wild, right? Because the so the Met they sent uh, you know a private detective to Zurich, and they sent lawyers to Beirut to talk with Serafian. And right. you know, it, it seemed like they were turning up evidence disproving that the piece had been illegally excavated and supporting the story that it had been in Lebanon. And so... Yeah, in a hat box. Yeah. Yeah, right. And so that's basically how things stood for for another 20 years, right? It's... Yeah, yes. And, and really... When, when the Italians became uh, began to really systematically investigate Giacomo Medici, again, this runner, um, when they raided his warehouse, they found photos of him posing next to the Euphronius crater at the Met, kind of grinning, and another of Bob Heck doing the same. And mm -hmm. they slowly started to Suspicious. unravel this relationship. Yeah, by the although way, these you know, are not the yeah. uh, the Italian police we're talking about. These are not your ordinary beat cops. This is the Carbonieri, the military police force with oh, the fancy yeah. uniforms, riding on their horses, gorgeous uniforms. Yeah, and they have a they have the most sophisticated art crime, um, you know, and anywhere art mm. crime unit anywhere, and uh, are quite pragmatic people, I will say. So they found. In their investigation into Medici and subsequently into Bob Hecht, that yeah. in fact Hecht had not bought this from this Lebanese dealer Serafian, but from Medici uh, for <laughs> drumroll three hundred fifty thousand dollars. So he was taking a very very healthy profit when he sold this thing to the Metropolitan Museum, and in turn it it seemed that Medici had bought this piece from the from tomb raiders for eighty eight thousand dollars yeah which so everybody was getting their healthy markup in here um have i yeah. have i got this all right so far you you have although you you missed the very weird uh, part where they raided Hecht's paris home and found this handwritten personal memoir describing two ways how he acquired the crater on the one hand from medici and on the other one from Sarafian. So uh, again, it's all sort of weird and circumstantial, even even now. So he was essentially keeping two sets of books. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, but it's interesting, you know. And maybe we can talk about this later. I mean, 
it's it's very they're good dealers and bad dealers and they're a set of bad dealers especially uh, now in the 70s and 80s that were they were probably doing they were buying in the legitimate trade and they they were buying from Tomberoli right from the source um but i think it's very dangerous just to damn an object because they're connected to one of these dealers i think i think there has to be a much more sensitive approach mm. another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, well, and I think it's so important to take these matters on a case-by-case basis, um, yeah. which is why we're talking about a specific object and not this sort of... Yeah. We'll get to some of the broad philosophical arguments, but yeah. um, but I think it's really important to ground it in actual facts or facts to the degree that we can determine what they are. And that, right. and so at this stage in the 1990s, the Carbonieri have done their investigation. They've turned out all of these damning and uh, suspicious, if not uh, outright disqualifying details yeah. about Hecht's operation. Um, yeah. So, so Bob Hecht is unmasked, so to speak, and this now yeah. leaves the Metropolitan Museum with a tough decision to make, because they had fairly convincing evidence that one of the most important ancient Greek pieces in their collection, which they had owned at this point for over twenty years, twenty-five years, that this piece yeah. had been illegally excavated and looted, and obviously the Italians wanted their piece returned, um, and mm-hmm. but. So before you tell us what actually happened from there, I'm curious, you know, if if you were in the shoes of the director of the Metropolitan Museum at this point, and yeah, I know this is an impossible hypothetical because of all of the factors they have to consider, but just from a sort of gut intuitive perspective, what do you think you would have done? I think Felipe Montebello had a had a horribly difficult decision to make. Um, I think it probably broke his heart. I think it probably broke Carlos Picon's heart. Um, I think the evidence still was circumstantial enough that they felt weird, but the press was so bad and the evidence was damning enough that I think he had to do it. And I think I probably would have done the same thing even though I think it should have stayed at the Met uh, for various reasons. So what did they ultimately agree to do? Well, I think the agreement was not a bad one. Um, So in 2006, they agreed that the crater would be returned um, and in exchange for the next 40 years, uh, Italian works of equivalent um, artistic significance are given on loan to the Met for four-year periods. Um, and that's that's a great thing, actually. These these uh, bilateral loans, um, I think, I think that's a very positive development. I wish it happened more. And so, where exactly did the Euphronius crater end up? Well, it had a big splashy homecoming, uh, Nostos, um, and when it was <laughs> first returned in two thousand six, with about twenty other pieces, um, it was a 
very sentimental thing for the Italians and a very well-attended homecoming in Rome. Then it went to the Villa Giulia, uh, a museum for Etruscan, Etruscan art, also in Rome, for a period. And now it, it, is, it is in a tiny museum in Trevetri, where it, uh, the site that it was likely looted from. And do you think that the return of an artifact like this one tends to drive more people to, to visit its new home, or in this case, I guess it's very old home? I think it's case by case. I think in this case, no. Um, I've, I've read figures that it's about about 12,000 people visit Trivetri, um every year. And uh, the crater is on the second floor, so one has sort of make an effort to get up there. It doesn't look terribly well lit to me in the photos that I've seen of the installation, although I haven't visited it since it's been there. Um, so I don't know. I I, uh, I I would have preferred that at least it had remained in Villa Giulia in Rome. Yeah. I mean, certainly many more people would have seen it at the Met, more people would have seen yeah. it in Rome than see it at the... This yeah little archaeological museum yeah. of Cerveteri, which, you know, to be clear, this is a, as you've described, is a quite a small museum an hour outside of Rome. Um, and so yeah. is it fair to say that, that something has been lost as a result? Um, I think, I think access is a, a really important thing. And I think that's why museums, that's, that's why they exist. Um, now, it, it, at least it is available to be seen by the public. It's not stuck in the storeroom. That's another fear that I have when things are repatriated, that they'll, they'll never be seen again. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think any knowledge is lost, but I do think accessibility has been greatly decreased. Now, I'm curious, the piece was looted originally from Italy, but as we've discussed you know, even before that, it was a, a Greek object and a, a singular artifact of, of the achievement of Greek culture and of this, this great Greek artist, Euphronios. Mm -hmm. Was there ever any thought that it should actually go back to Greece instead of Italy? Not that I know of. Maybe they should have a go at it. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess, I guess it hadn't been legally exported, so I guess that would be the main... Yeah, I don't know. I guess the statute of limitations has run out <laughs> on the, on the exportation of of this piece in 515 BC. Yes, I think so. Yeah. So the Greeks may have lost their their uh, legal claim, but I wonder. Right. I, I mean, we talk so much these days about repatriation for cultural and social reasons, even more so than legal reasons. Even when pieces may have been exported legally, their native country is sometimes still feel that they have a moral claim to those objects. Right. Um, and right. in that context, it's a little surprising to me that a piece like this hasn't been the object of, of Greek interest. It is a bit surprising, but I don't know. I mean, they, I hate to say that a museum is saturated, but if you go to, if you go to the storerooms of, of most museums in Greece, they, they, they don't have room. I mean, so I, I would understand a sentimental argument, but I think, I think logistically and, and it, it wouldn't make too much sense for them. So 
I mean, today to export a, a an important antiquity or an important work of art from a country, mm-hmm. you generally mm-hmm. have to get a, a license or an export permit. But of course, that's a recent development. For most of history, that trade was largely unregulated. So let's imagine instead of having mm-hmm. been looted, this piece had been legally exported, say, in the early 19th century, which and now we're yep. describing a scenario that's a little bit closer to the famous debate over the, the Elgin marbles or the Parthenon marbles. But mm-hmm. in that scenario, how might you think about its its rightful home? I imagine surely it would still be at the Met in that case. I think absolutely it would, yeah. Do you think that legality of the transaction really makes a fundamental difference to the rightful home of, a, of an object of that significance? It's tough as an American, right? I mean, I I don't... <laughs> I don't feel that it necessarily adds anything to the object if it's in near nearer to its place of manufacture. I just don't. Um, but if I were Greek or Italian, I might feel very, very differently. Um, so it's a, a hard one. I don't know. Yeah. What's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I have to say I share your instinct about that. Um, I'm a dealer, and so yeah. you know, my basic assumption is that works of art are are made for consumption, and that right. consumption is part of uh, an economic context and an economic exchange. Um, and I know that s- for some people, that economic element can feel dirty. It can feel um, profane, <laughs> and. Yeah. For well, me, I think, it, just, it yeah. doesn't really. <laughs> yeah, I, well, having having worked as a as a dealer for five years myself, I I I, I share your opinion. Um, but I do think that the massive prices uh, that antiquities started to fetch in the seventies, eighties, nineties, they really did make looting a problem. So, uh, in that sense, I think. Mm, that drove commerce and now here we are with this repatriation sort of uh yeah and to be clear i'm i'm not advocating for a sort of laissez-faire unregulated um you know go go loot whatever you want kind of (laughs) scenario i I do think that you know regulations and protections are, are critical and that national governments do have at least the legal right to Uh, oversee the kinds of commerce that are done within their borders that being said i think from a from the sort of moral perspective i feel that if the laws have been complied with and if the you know legitimate democratic government of a country has decided that a certain kind of transaction is permissible um i can't really find any basis to complain about that yeah Um, I, i i quite agree um, I think my biggest concern now is that the sort of the atmosphere right now, especially in New York for antiquities, but the U.S., Germany, also Switzerland to some extent, um, this this uh, kind of dogmatic um, re- uh, drive for repatriation, actually coming from the DA's office, and you quoted you quoted. Um, um, 
those figures earlier. Yeah. 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 And so I'm more familiar with the, the sound bites of uh, Bogdanov. Um, but he is, yeah, he's the ADA. He's made a special art art crime unit in New York. And they are actually the ones instigating these repatriations. Mm-hmm. And I, I do wonder, um, first of all, what his end game is. Um, and I also wonder what's going to happen to these great old collections that now things can never go, they can never enter the legitimate trade, or if they can, they can do so very quietly. Um, they can never be requested to museums, which is what these collectors had in mind to begin with. And I think that is a tragedy because all of this information will be lost yeah. it, within a yeah. generation. Um, well, and I think that, you know, one factor that is so often overlooked is, you know, it's easy to say that all of these pieces ought to belong in museums and that uh, ideally they should be in the museums closest to their original homes and that uh, to to some moral intuition that that can feel right. But yeah. The reality is that interest in these objects isn't self-propagating. It requires maintenance. It requires enthusiasm and it requires resources. Yeah. And generally speaking, yeah. the people who provide that enthusiasm and those resources, well, the collectors are a huge part of that. Um, the people who, right. who and- endow the museum positions to study these pieces and who, uh, yeah. who fund the 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 wings to dis- the museum wings to display them not right. to mention the people who of course keep the uh the gears of commerce turning in terms of the private market and i do have a concern yeah. that if those people who are uh, you know easy to to demonize but if those people feel boxed out of the market uh, to the point that they can't really have any fun participating in it, in it anymore that can have some pretty serious knock-on effects in terms of the uh, the legitimate study and and interest that the public can maintain in these really important objects. Absolutely, um, and you know, I think I think collectors get a very bad rap. I think um, most have, a, a, especially in my field, probably your field too. They're not. It's not contemporary art. There's no. They're not investments as much as as those things, um, and I think I think there's a true love and appreciation for these objects. They're almost putting their money where their mouths are. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one collector friend, and I'll paraphrase because I don't quite remember what what exactly she said, but about looting, she's like, Jesus, I'd rather I, I would no more want to see the head of my favorite statue in my living room than I would like to see the head of my favorite person chopped off and in my living room. It's it's horrendous. Um, And I think another aspect about this kind of loss of knowledge and the current paranoia, um, and it goes in the scholarly academic route too. Um, So a lot of scholarly journals um, will not publish artworks that are in private collections. They won't publish things without a provenance before 1970. So not only the, these things cannot be seen in museums, they're just they're just lost. The, the, the mm. knowledge of them is will just disappear. Um, I, and I, I I had a professor in grad school who said he would never enter the house of 
someone who <laughs> collected antiquities. Well, Even though, well, I mean, my, my entire scholarship was paid by a famous collector of antiquities, and it was insane. Incredible. So there's a lot of hypocrisy. A lot yeah. of biting the hand that feeds you, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but fear also on the term. Academics want to keep their digs. They want to keep the host countries happy. Um, but I do I do fear that that um, loss of knowledge. I think more than anything. Yeah, yeah. And again, I don't want people to to get the impression that we're sort of, you know, weeping over the poor fate of these wealthy independent collectors. You know, they're going to no. be fine. But it's the, the concern really is, is about the material and the role that these people inevitably play and have for all of human history since the very first patrons who purchased pieces like this in 500 BC. You know, the, the, yeah. That economic exchange has always driven the value, not just the financial value, but the cultural and social value of these works of art. Um, and, and I feel there is a risk of overcorrection against that reality. Yes. Yeah, I think that's what's happening now. And I hope I hope it swings back the other way. Yeah. Okay, before we go, I just, and I know we can do a whole episode or a series of episodes about this, but I have to ask you about the most famous repatriation controversy in the world, the Elgin marbles or the Parthenon marbles. Uh, so, Give me the Cliff's Note version on this. What, first of all, what do you call them? I call them the Elgin Marbles. Um, and and do you think they should be returned? Ah, uh, well, tough to say. They I, they were legally exported under the Ottoman Empire, um, and I think the Brits actually did pretty good service in getting them out there when they did right before the whole east side of the Parthenon blew up and the rest of the things were sort of polluted beyond repair. Um, that said, having recently visited Athens, they've done such a beautiful job with the Acropolis Museum, and it would be so nice to have them bathed in that wonderful Athenian light, looking at the, at the Parthenon itself. Um, I don't know. I, I leave that the legal situation to Amal Clooney, um, but I do think that the Brits uh, really saved those things, and and I think that's a that's no small thing. And I also think they're sort of the root of um, somehow of, of Western appreciation of of Greek art. It, that's how it was known. That's kind of the first. There was Vinkelmann, who had never been to Greece, and then there were these sculpture, right. uh, beautiful sculptures, uh, sort of suddenly accessible. Now they're not beautifully displayed in the British Museum. They need a little facelift. Fair enough. Yeah, I noticed that, um, despite the fact that it was the Ottomans who sold them, there's been yeah. no effort that I'm aware of by the Turks to try to buy them back from the Brits. That's true. <laughs> the Turks can give a damn. <laughs> um, yeah, I can just imagine the uh, revolt that would spring up overnight in Greece. It would be um, kind so, of fun, right? <laughs> yes. Well, you, you know, a tribute to the fundamentally international character of these works of uh, of antique art. Lillian Bartlett Stoner, thank you so much for joining me. This is this has been a lot of fun and a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for inviting me. 
Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati with social media and web support by Sarah Bellata. Sierra Holt is our digital media and editorial associate. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. Thank you.